It's always great when you can cry right before you're about to speak. Um, good morning, church, and welcome to our neighbors here and those watching online. Um, something that has been just a, a major blessing in my own life has been um, officiating some weddings. So I've done more than a few, but not a ton. But the thing about officiating weddings is you really get to know people, right? So like when people will come and they'll ask, hey, would you perform our wedding? Would you do this thing? And I always say, okay, yeah, absolutely. But there's one requirement. And the requirement is you have to agree to premarital counseling. Now, premarital counseling is where the rubber really meets the road, okay? This is when someone's making a commitment to work through the stuff that they've been dealing with, with someone else, in front of someone else, right? So they're making a commitment to each other, a commitment to me, I'm making a commitment to them, and the commitment is that we're going to take it seriously, we're going to deal with the real stuff, and work through this so that you can have, hopefully, a successful marriage, because you have the tools going into it. Now, everyone kind of says yes to that initially, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, we should do that. And then you start to do it, and then you go through the steps, and you meet for a couple of weeks, and there's a feeling out period, and it's, it's awesome. And you teach behaviors and, and ways to communicate and ways to handle things, but it always tends to go off the rails at one particular section. When you begin to teach someone how to argue, that's when it, because here's the thing, in a marriage, there are some arguments, amen? That's a weak amen for that, right? Okay, there are some arguments, it happens, okay? So when you begin to teach people what the rules for arguing are, and they're coming up with them themselves, because this is their marriage, and you're teaching them how they are to communicate with one another, what are the things that are inbounds, what are the things that are not inbounds, right? That's when a switch starts to flip. And for those of you guys that teach, you know what I'm talking about. When you see kind of the pupil begin to understand, it happens generally for the ladies first. Shocker. Um, the guys, it's a little bit slower for us. But when you realize that, oh, this is serious. I, I can't just walk through this. I can't just kind of go along with it. These words matter. The difference between me being able to effectively communicate with my spouse and try to improve our communication and our marriage and build something for generations versus harming them are slight. It takes deliberate, communicative patience. And when you start to do that under small scales with people and they start to see it, they're like, oh, yeah, this is important. And then the premarital counseling goes to a whole other level. Then you can really start to deal with some things and kind of move forward. The reason I share this with you is we've been studying. We started this series last week, right? Remember the, the, the title of the series, What If Jesus Was Serious? Okay? Yeah, what if Jesus was serious about the stuff he said? What does that mean for us? Does that actually change my day-to-day -day life? If Jesus said to go... Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you till the end of the day. Like, if that's all there, what if he's serious? It's a little scary. So, the challenge that we have this morning is, we're going to go through this section called the Beatitudes, right? So, Pastor Michael started the series last week. 
We've read through those 12 verses. We're going to read through those verses again. We're going to unpack specifically three of them today in Matthew chapter 5. But I know what you kind of go, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Blessed is the blah, 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 for they will blah, blah, blah. Right? We've heard it before. We know what that is. Don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Copy. I'll, I'll nod a couple times. Got it. The challenge is to not just not do that, but to actually engage with the text, engage with what God has for us this morning, and continue to be introduced to the God of the universe, because what if Jesus was serious? So before we jump into that, let's begin by asking God to do that for us by going through the disciples' prayer. There we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. So, the big idea is that Jesus' vision of the good life calls us to respond to our poverty. So we learned last week the idea of what our poverty is, but let's kind of level set because not everybody was here last week or maybe you know, God's really starting to work on it with you. So let's go through some of the things that we learned last week. We first learned that this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So this is a series of sermons on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, on a hillside, Jesus is preaching this. The section is called the Beatitudes because Beatitudes is just a fun, you know, kind of church word that means blessings. So when you hear Beatitudes, it's blessings, right? So Jesus is saying, blessed are those, right? If you're in the King James, blessed, right? Or you're blessed if, right? So when you hear it, that's the kind of terminology that we're going to be going with. And also we talk about this idea of the good life. Jesus' vision of the good life is a life that's reliant on his strength, not our own. And you have this kind of mirror of like, okay, what society would put forth as the good life versus what God would put forth as the good life, and they're completely separate. They're two totally different things, right? We're talking about the idea of poverty. Now, poverty is defined in what we're going through is our helpless estate, okay? So literally, it's that idea of, okay, hold on. I bring nothing to the table. We as a people are sinful. We looked at God and said we want to do things our own way. We don't want to follow him. That's what we bring to the table. And God says, I love you. I died for you. I was resurrected from the dead. And I have a plan for your life. And that plan is to show more people who I am. We bring nothing to it. And we have to start there. We have to understand what it means by poverty. Pastor Michael talked about that last week, about the idea of, like, Jesus' vision for the good life is built. The foundation of it is our poverty. you got to start there. But now we're going to put a little bit more feet on it, and we're going to talk about our response to that in these next few verses. Make sense? All right, we're all on the same page. We're good? All right, so we're going to go ahead and read through the verses now. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up, to the, went up on the mountains, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before me. So I remember it as a young Christian reading that and going, oh, so just blessed when life is awful. That sounds nuts, right? Can we all just admit that for a second? It sounds, it sounds crazy. But it's because, again, we're not operating from the mindset of what poverty is in the eyes of God and what the good life is in the eyes of us. They're completely flipped. So we're going to go through these verses verses 5, 6, and 7, and unpack, or 6, 7, 8, excuse me, and unpack these a little bit more. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, hunger and thirst. Okay, anyone here been hungry? Anyone here been thirsty? Are you currently one of those things? There you go, I like it. It's a universal thing. Baby's born. Screaming. Hey, the baby, like, it's an immediate need, right? Everyone understands hunger. Everyone understands thirst. This is something that we've all gone through. And guess what? Wagner, bummer, man, you're going to be hungry tomorrow. Exactly, right? We're all thinking about noon right now. I gave Pastor Michael a hard time. I said, you keep giving me the passages about food. But, like, this is the thing. Like, it's going to happen again. So not only are we going to be hungry, are we going to be thirsty, but then we're going to drink and we're going to eat, and then in a couple of hours, it's going to happen again. We all understand this need. We all understand this desire. We all understand the idea of not being satisfied, amen? We get it. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So hunger and thirst... But hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Now, righteousness is a big church word. Like, you can go through the Bible, and you can spend as much time as you want going through and do word studies on righteousness. When you see the word righteousness, you should just be thinking right choices. But it's really important to understand whose right choices. The righteousness of Jesus, right, when it says it to us, like in Ephesians, put on the righteousness of God. Versus my own righteousness, because the thing is, I can make myself believe a lot of the choices that I make are right. Have you ever convinced yourself of something that was hooey? Come on, right? All the time. We can rationalize anything. Our own righteousness, Isaiah 64 says, is as filthy rags compared to God's. You want to put on that righteousness? Because that's easy. That's a show. But are we hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God? 
that's a completely different thing. Jesus says that blessed are those that have a regular desire to put on Jesus's right choices. You tracking? How regular is your desire? Just like clockwork, I'm going to be thirsty, I'm going to be hungry. How normal is it in your life to put on Jesus's righteousness? Because for those where it is, they're blessed. You see it? It's a completely different understanding of the words. Those that have that regular desire, put on Jesus' right choices, how regular is ours to do that? Something that helps me whenever I'm studying God's word, because I think like a second grader. That's why I teach kids, okay? Something that helps me understand is it's like, okay, if this is true, the inverse is probably false, right? So then I kind of play with the words a little bit. It helps me understand. So maybe this is helpful for you guys. Not blessed are those that have a desire to make themselves look better by performing for an audience. Not blessed are those that continue to put on their own righteousness and show it like a peacock. Make sense? So this idea of thirst, think about the past seven days of your life, this past week, how hungry and thirsty have you been? Better yet, how satisfied have you been? How's that been going? Because Jesus says to the woman at the well, drink of this water and you'll never... What? Okay. What if what Jesus said he meant? It's a little rough. Because I'm, I'm never satisfied. I constantly want more. I constantly want the next thing. But are we thirsting and hungering for the proper righteousness. Because if we are, we're blessed. If we're not, not blessed. Let's move on to the next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, now this one seems super simple. It's like, mercy, I get it. Being nice to somebody, forgiving them, okay, that, that makes sense. But the, the word translation here is really tough. It translates to active pity. Now, who's that? Come on. I know some of y'all know. Yeah, yeah. Do it, do it, man. Oh, see, I thought it was you, man. Yeah, I pity the fool, right? He said, I pity the fool that, right? Now, was he pitying him and wanting to help him, or was he pitying him and wanting to, like, bust him up? This is Mr. T. It's a tough dude, right? But active pity. Think about this for a second, because this is so huge, but it's so easy to just skip right past, right? Blessed is the blah, 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 for they blah, 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 right? It's easy to do that with this one. Merciful, active pity. Jesus saw us in our sinfulness, in our bustedness, in our muteness, everything, and had an active pity on us went down, interacted with the world, led the sinless life, walked with us, got dirty, did, did the thing, resurrected, showed that he conquered sin and death. Active pity, okay? He was merciful. There may be no better way that we can emulate our God than doing that. 
than being merciful to someone else. Think about that. Think about those that you're interacting with on a daily basis that you could just show active pity to. It sounds so easy, but it's so hard for a couple of reasons. First, you have to be engaged in your community. And you have to know what's going on. You have to know what needs are there. And then you have to act on those. Jesus knew what was going on in the world, was engaged with it, and changed it. What better way could we imitate our Savior? What better way could we follow Jesus than showing active pity on those that he loves? We could be like Mr. T. We could pity the fool, right? I just love saying that. Figured I could figure out a way to get that in the sermon. Or we could be like Christ and do something about it. It's a different thing. Real, long-lasting satisfaction comes from God. Godly mercy is active. Not blessed are the ones that stare into their phone and ignore the needs of the community around them. Last one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All right, so pure in heart. Okay, so we, we understand the idea of purity, right? It, it seems simple enough. What, what does purity mean? Anyway, I waited like to the third point before I asked you all a question. What's that? Goodness, okay. All the same, right? No, no impurity. No, no, you see, I used the word to define it that great, right? So I, there's nothing foreign, right? It's all the same thing. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity means without any other substance. It's completely one. The pure heart means pure motives, desires, and principles. All completely one thing. All pointing towards what? Following Christ. That's a pure heart. All pointing towards following Christ. Not an outward perception, but a whole reality. Now, what I love about this is the second part. For they shall see God. Now, let's unpack this for a second because newsflash, everybody's going to see God. It's in there. <laughs> Everyone's going to stand before God and you're going to hear a couple of different things, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. It's kind of a pass-fail. It's going to happen, Right? What they're referring to when Jesus is preaching this, the point that he's making is, think about God being the king, and kings are not exactly hanging out with everybody. They got an inner circle, and the inner circle are their favorites, their friends, and those that know them. What Jesus is saying in this moment is the pure of heart see God. You are a friend of God. You are a favorite of God if you have a pure heart. It's mind-blowing. Now, how do you get that? You do a lot of really good things. No. You can't even get it on your own. He has to do it. So he gives you the pure heart by paying for all of your sins, and part of having that pure heart and not submitting yourselves to all of these other gods 
but submitting yourselves to the one God that can actually handle the burden of your salvation, you get to be his friend. You get to be his favorite. You get to be a favorite, I should say. Because there's, there's other people too. It's a big table. Not blessed are those that allow their hearts to follow many other created gods. So again, let's think back the last seven days or so. That's easier for us to remember. How much of that seven days has our pie chart looked a little screwy? How much of that percentage has been towards really worrying about the bills or maybe putting way too much of a burden on a relationship that can't handle it and making that be your God? How much is that? Because there's only one that can handle it. There's only one that offers to really be able to do it anyway. It's Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus gives his friends a pure heart. So, let's bring it together. So, Jesus' vision of the good life calls us to respond to our own poverty. So, we've talked about poverty. We've talked about the understanding of kind of realistically where we are. That's where we are. We are in a helpless estate needing God to do everything. But that doesn't mean that we don't respond to understanding what his truth is. We've got to ask ourselves some questions. First, what are we hungering and thirsting for? How satisfied are we? Is our pity active like Jesus? What does our pie chart look like, as weird as that sounds? How have we responded to the realization of our own poverty? Because that's where we are. The knowledge of that should change our actions. It should change what it is we do. But notice something specific about those questions. None of them have I in it. They're all we. Jesus has a personal relationship with everyone in this room that has decided to follow him. But you cannot be the church by yourself. He calls us to bind our lives together, to connect with one another through the Holy Spirit, to lift one another up, to worship together the way that we did this morning. He calls us to that. And he equips us to call each other out when we're not tracking with the being blessed stuff. And he also equips us to encourage that we are. It's all connected. It's all there for a purpose because Jesus gives his friends a pure heart. We are the church. Blessed is the church, for we are his bride. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak through it. God, just continue the work of revealing more of who you are. It's just nuts to see you in action, God. Thank you that we get to do that. Draw us close. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So.
sermon is never really meant to be uh, the end-all, be-all. We can kind of only scratch the surface, uh, even of just three, uh, three short phrases. So um, Ryan's left us with some questions to, to consider. Let's consider those personally. Um, but then it might be uh, a good week to invite some friends over for dinner and to say, hey, I want to have a conversation about some stuff that God's doing in, in my heart. And this might be a good place to start. But um, let's spend some time and reflect and ask God uh, how to guide us and direct us this week.